turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. You must be born anew. That's what Jesus told a very good, very righteous, very law-abiding man named Nicodemus last week. A man who was serious about his Bible, a man who was serious about bringing honor to God, and a man who probably thought that he had, as best he could, earned his way into the kingdom. That was Nicodemus. And so Jesus shatters his expectations. Jesus shatters his entire category for what it means to come into the kingdom by saying, no, Nicodemus, what you need is a new birth. You don't, all all your praying, all your preaching, all your Bible reading, they will gain you nothing apart from the new birth. And if it was true for Nicodemus, it's true for us. And so now what we're going to read today is John's continuing thoughts. Jesus' words probably finish in verse 15. And what picks up in verse 16 are John's continuing thoughts on what Jesus has said. Jesus finishes, finishes with Nicodemus by calling him to believe. He says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Recalling that story in Numbers 21 where the people have sinned, poisonous snakes are ravaging the camp, and they cry out for help. They say, we've sinned, we know it, help us. And God tells Moses, make a, make a snake, make a statue of a snake. The very thing that's killing and poisoning the people, make that. Put it on a pole, put it in the middle of the camp, and whenever someone looks at the snake, they will be saved. They will have, in a sense, new life. And what Jesus tells Nicodemus is, that story was really about me. It functioned in one way in the Old Testament, but what it means now is that I am that serpent. I am that curse that must be lifted up. And the only way for people to have new life, the only way for people to be saved from the curse, from the poison of the serpent's bite, right, from the snake in the garden in Genesis 3, the only way for the people to be delivered is if they look at me. Nicodemus, the only way for you to be rescued is if you look at me when I am lifted up. Why would God do that? We're about to find out why. John 3, we'll start reading in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in, but, um, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the verdict. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light 
lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, we ask simply for new eyes and new ears, for a heart that understands and grips the truth. The truth is read here. Lord, would you help us to know it? Would you help us to understand it so that we can believe it? So that we can believe you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Know your why. It's kind of a popular, uh, maybe it's not popular anymore, but popular slogan, right? In the uh, self-motivation world, you've got to know your why. It's popular in athletics. It's actually a really popular question in our home at the moment. Why? Why is there a train on the track? Why is it rainy today? Right? Uh, our children definitely want to know the why. But going further, right, when, when somebody says, know your why, right, when the, when the consultant, when the business consultant says, know your why, he's saying, you've got to know what you're here for. You've got to know your purpose. You've got you to know the reason you do what you do. If you don't know it, then you're going to have a sense of hopelessness in it. You won't, your work will seem meaningless to you. Now, if you are of the... Of, well, you're not of the World War II generation, but if you are older than 55, that whole concept seems probably very, very foreign to you, right? Because you just worked. You worked because it put food on your table. That was why enough. So it's only these like namby-pamby 30-somethings. We're the ones who are like, oh, does my work mean anything? Okay, so realize that that illustration only applies to those of us who seem, who've, only, who've only always ever had food on the table. Uh, we actually have to know purpose. Uh, we, we feel like we've got to know a deeper purpose in our work, and to some degree that's true. But what we're going to find out in John 3, what we learn from John 3 is this. We learn God's why. Why does God do what he does? Why does God give new birth? Right? He told Nicodemus, man can't manufacture the new birth. You cannot make it happen. The Spirit blows where he wishes. And when he does, you will know it. You will have new birth. Why does God do that? Why does God lift up the sun? Why does God give the sun? And the reason is this. Because God loves. God gives his greatest love, his one and only son, to rescue the world from darkness. Let's kind of follow John's logic. God is love. God's love is the why behind saving sinners. And here's what that means. It means that salvation is not rooted in me. And salvation is not rooted in you. It is not rooted in my desire to be rescued. John does not say, God saw a bunch of people looking for a rescuer. And so he loved them and decided to do something about it. What it says is God loved and he saved. God's salvation is rooted in God's unfathomable love. 
John picks this theme up in his first letter, 1 John 4, 9 through 10. He says this, In this the love of God was revealed among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. That's basically what he just said in 3.16. Then he goes on, verse 10 of 1 John 4. In this is love. Here's the definition of God's love. Are you ready? Well, this is what it looks like. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. All of that is not rooted in us. It's not rooted in our love for God. We are not the first lovers here. God is. God loves first. God gives first. And here's something else maybe we're prone to do. We need to understand that God is the one who defines what love is. See, we may come to John 3.16, and what we want to do is, is define it based on what I think love is. So I'm going to look at the way that I love. Whether it's good or bad, and it's usually a mixture of both, usually I love or I show love to get something in return. Right? So my love tends to be fairly self-driven. And so we are in danger of defining love based on what we experience. But it doesn't work that way. God's love actually defines what love looks for us. We learn our definition of love from God. And here in John 3.16, here we see love in its truest form. This is what love looks like. It's the love, it's the generous love of sacrifice. God is love. What does God do with his love? He loves a hostile world. People do crazy things for love, right? Love is all over our stories. It's what the best stories are made of. We watched Toy Story 2 again this weekend. (laughs) Right? Why Why does Buzz leave the safety of the house to go get Woody, because he loves Woody. Woody's his friend, and he wants to bring him home. Love is all over our songs. We know that Meatloaf would do anything for love, except that. And we still don't know what that is. Some of you were there. Okay, good. It's good. But here's the thing about the way that our stories and our songs talk about love. In every single case, the object of that love is desirable. Buzz goes after Woody because Woody is his friend, and he loves Woody, and because Woody actually did the same thing for him in the previous movie. And so Buzz's love is simply response. His object is desirable. Right? Our love songs, we sing about our loves because there is something in them that we find lovely. And so where John 3.16 contradicts every love song and every love story is that God's love goes after an object that is actually very unlovely. That's what John means when he says God loves the world. He's not simply talking about the universality, that God's love is for every kind of person. Though that is certainly true. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles, it's for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But that's not what John means. No, if you read John's gospel, what you'll realize when you 
see him use the word world, he's always talking about the sinful, broken, rebellious world. So what he's saying is that God loves the world that does not love him. God loves people who do not want him. That is, that is the real depth and magnitude of God's love in John 3. That, that God's love is a love that pursues the unlovely, not the lovely. It pursues hostility. Right? God's love does not come into a neutral world. It's not like Jesus found a bunch of blank slates just waiting to be written on. Wondering, oh, who am I going to follow? Jesus seems like a good option. That's not the world that God's love comes into. God's love comes into a hostile world, a world that is doing everything it can to rebel against him. That's the love of God. If this were a human relationship, we'd tell the guy to, to give it up. We'd say, she's just not that into you. Let her go. But this is not a human relationship. God doesn't let her go. This is why, thankfully, we don't define love. God defines it for us. And what we see about God, God's love for a hostile world, the way that God loves is he gives his son, his one and only. That's that word in the ESV. It says he gives his only son, It's the same word that was used in John 1. Maybe yours translation says only begotten. And what's captured in that word is this thought, that this is God's perfectly unique one and only son. There is no other like him. Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis is described this way. Abraham, of course, had other sons, but Isaac was his one and only. Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the one who received the blessing. Jesus is God's one and only, his treasure. God adopts many sons and many daughters into his family, but there is only one true son. And it is that son that must be lifted up. It is that son that he gives up. God gives his greatest treasure. As the hymn goes, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And we could even amend it to say, a world full of wretches. God gives the son for a world full of wretches. And and that equation, that just doesn't make earthly sense to us. The dream of alchemy, do you know your history? What the alchemist sought to do was take worthless base metal and transform it into gold, miraculously, right? To take lead and make it into gold. They never really succeeded. But that's what God does. God aims to do precisely that. He takes the gold of heaven and purchases the lead of the world so that he can have instead a world full of gold, gold purchased by the Son. 
So that is God's aim. That is his why. He loves the world so much so that he dies for it. He gives his treasure to purchase the world. What do you give your treasure for? What about your treasure? What is most precious to you? We want to be a church that gives itself away in mercy, serving, evangelism, and stewardship. Do you know why? Because we follow a God who does that. We follow a God who gives himself away to purchase lost sinners. Verse 17 Why did God send the Son? What's this mission look like? God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This is a rescue mission. The Son's mission is not condemnation. Later on, we will learn, of course, from Jesus' own lips that He does have the authority and the power to judge. He will come for that. But that day is not today. That day is the day to come. When he will be the one on the white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth. But that day is not today. Today he comes to rescue. And the son actually doesn't have to come to condemn. Verse 18 we see, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Again, Jesus doesn't come into a neutral world. In fact, what John is saying is that the world is already under sentence. It's already condemned. The condemnation is already on it. What Jesus does is he doesn't come with condemnation. He doesn't have to. It's already here. It's already been declared. What Jesus does is come to rescue people out from condemnation. He comes to offer forgiveness. He comes to take the sentence. He comes to those awaiting execution. And he becomes the execution for everyone who believes in him. And so execution is stayed. Condemnation is removed from those who believe. And the result is life. In Ephesians 2, we were dead in our sins and God chose to have mercy and bring life to those who believe. The, the, The mission of the Son of God is a rescue mission. What is our mission? If we are those who are identified with Jesus if we come together as those who praise His name and who worship His name, what sort of mission are we on? What do we spend our treasure for? Our mission is a rescue mission. We're not here to build up our own edifices. We're not here to store up earthly treasure. It won't matter how nice your house looked when you die. We are sent into the world to rescue. And we do that following the rescuer himself. This is the mission of John 3, 17 and 18. So how will people respond to the mission? How will the love of God be received? Verse 19. 
This is the verdict. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Here's the verdict. Here's how people respond to the mission. They hate it. Here's how people respond to the light. They don't want it. People love darkness, John says. They want to stay in darkness. And they prefer darkness as a rule because the light exposes. We prefer darkness as a rule because the light exposes our shame. Blackmail wouldn't work if this were not true. If you don't know what blackmail is, blackmail is a crime where someone comes to you and says, I know what you've done. I know your secret. And if you don't do this favor for me, if you don't give me this money, I will tell the world. I will broadcast it and you will be ruined. And so, people love the darkness. We hide our shame. We we hide our evil. And so what the coming of the light does is it reveals a divided humanity. It reveals reality. And the reality is that the majority wants to remain in darkness. And that is exactly what will happen. That those who refuse to believe in the Son will remain in darkness. And they are already condemned. They are already under a sentence of judgment. But the light reveals others. The light reveals a new humanity. These are those who believe. Those who are rescued from condemnation. Jesus says... Excuse me, John says that whoever does what is true comes to the light. That whoever does what is true is an old Hebrew phrase. Whoever does what is honorable. Literally, whoever acts in such a way that the truth comes to life. That what is inside is revealed outside. The good is brought out. He acts honorably. He acts the truth These people come to the light. They're not afraid of being exposed. They enjoy the light. They want it. And they don't come to the light to show off their good deeds. That would be the Pharisees of Matthew 6. Those who do their good deeds so that other people will see. This is not who John is talking about. John is talking about people who come into the light. And as they do, it is revealed that their good deeds are done in God. That he is the one who is working their works. Look at verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so here's what we learn. You can even follow kind of the order of salvation that John lays out in chapter 3. It begins with a new birth. And then it goes to the atonement. So the Spirit gives new birth. We have the Son of Man lifted up. And the call is to believe. And you can't have the new birth without believing. And you can't believe without the new birth. They go hand in hand. If you are not born again, you will not believe. And you will not believe if you are not born again. So those who are born anew respond in belief in the lifted up Son of Man, in the atoning sacrifice. And the result... 
good works done that reveal the glory of God's goodness. So this is the verdict. There are two kinds of people. Just two. For all of our personality tests and assessments and gifts, there are really only two kinds of people. There are two humanities. And they are defined by a love of the darkness that always seeks to hide. Or a love of the light. Which one do you belong to? Which one are you? Jesus came into the darkness to bring his beloved into the light. John says this not to tell us that salvation is by works, whether we do good or do bad, but to to tell us how serious the situation is. To make us ask ourselves the question, am I hiding in darkness or am I rejoicing in the light? And if you are hiding in darkness... Come to the sun. What is at stake? I was in, um, this is going to sound a little crass, I was in a bathroom at a Cracker Barrel. It's maybe an odd way to end a sermon. But there was a card on top of the toilet. And it said, and I say that, this is is how jarring this whole experience was. It, It was clouds and sunshine, looked really pretty. And it said, Eternity begins at death, John 3.16. That may be a really good place to put a card where you're trying to reach somebody, um, but that wasn't really what, what struck me. What struck me is how wrong that is. Because what Jesus is telling Nicodemus and what John is telling us is that eternity doesn't wait for death. That the new life is available now. In Jesus, that that eternity, eternal life with God, the kingdom of God, can be grasped now. It begins now and stretches into eternity. But you must believe. You must come to the Son of Man who is sent into the world. God sends His Son for the life of the world, for your life. Do you believe? Do you want life? That's the invitation of John 3. You need a new birth? Ask for it. You need a a Savior? Trust Jesus. Believe in Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Lord of heaven and earth, As we come to the table, the table that you have set before us, the table that you have set is for our spiritual good. We must answer that question. We cannot approach the table lightly. We must approach it as either ones who love the light and want to come into the light and reveal that we are of God. Or we must stay away because we long, really long to remain in darkness. Lord, I pray for new life, for salvation, that those who are in darkness would see the light, that they would not shun it, that they would not run from it, but they would come to it.
and be saved. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. forward and um, take the